Welcome to Masters of Social Gastronomy, in which every, every month we talk about food, and you listen to us. My name is Sarah Lohman. I'm the author of fourpoundsflower.com, which is my blog, Historic Gastronomy. I uh, eat things from the past, and then I talk about them. And this is Soma. He's one of the co-founders of the Brooklyn Brainery, which offers low-commitment, low-cost classes, and just about anything that you could dream of wanting to know. So here's what we're doing tonight. We are each going to give a little talk. I'm going to start, and I'm going to be talking about the history of vegetarians and what kind of led up to the creation of fake meat. So there are a bunch of different kinds of fake meat. And they're really <laughs> mysterious because the only thing you know about them is they're not made out of meat. And hopefully I will demystify that for you so next time you go in praising Satan or whatever, um, you'll know what you're dealing with, right? Yeah, it's too early for jokes. Fake meat. Let's talk about it. The reason we have fake meat is because some people don't want to eat meat. I don't know if you knew that. So that's what I want to talk about. Now, the term, one of the terms that I learned while I was doing this research is that fake meat, the official name for it, is meat analogs. So anything from your tofurkey to your chicken nuggets, that's all called a meat analog. That's a technical term. And the idea of meat analogs are very closely tied in with the history of vegetarianism. So I want to paint you a picture of the creation of the first fake meats through the history of vegetarianism. Now, today, vegetarianism is largely considered to be a secular movement, right? Anyone of any faith can be vegetarian. It's sometimes an ethical or moral issue, but it's really not tied closely to your religion. But for most of vegetarians' history, that's not true. And its ancient origins in the East, in Buddhism, in Hinduism, tied very closely to religion. And even in Western culture, in Christianity, the roots of vegetarianism have very much to do with Christianity, with religious faith. Now, at the very beginning, there was someone who was an early vegetarian who was secular in a sense. That's this guy. You know him. He had a theory. You might have had to learn it sometime or another. So if you wanted to study under Pythagoras back in ancient Greece, you had to follow a Pythagorean diet. And a Pythagorean diet was a vegetarian diet. Here's what's interesting about it. He was a vegetarian because he was opposed to the animal sacrifice, which was a, a part of Greek religion at the time, which I thought was very noble. Here's the flip side, the flip side of Pythagoras. Um, he also hated beans. From what I've read, there seems to be no logical reason behind his bean hatred. Some people have theorized that he didn't like gas. Some people said that he didn't eat any seeds because they were considered this germ of life. But it went as far, legend goes, that when Pythagoras' enemies set his house on fire, by this point he's an old man, he ran out of the house and he was running away from the people who wanted to kill him. And he gets to a bean field and stops. And he says, he declared that he would rather die than enter the bean field, at which point his pursuers slit his throat and he died. There's no confirmation that that's true, but that man hated beans. So Pythagoras was still um, influencing people long, long after his incident next to the bean field. This is a... a treatise on his theories that's printed in the 18th century. And this was read by philosophers in the 18th century who were then read by other people, most notably this guy. <laughs> I have to admit, I was alone in my apartment today. When I found this, I, I laughed out loud. 
I am, but I'm also hot and thirsty. Um, ben Franklin, as a young man, was vegetarian. Now, he says it wasn't religion and it wasn't um, morality for him. Uh, he said he was a student and he didn't have a lot of money, so he became vegetarian so he could save money so he could buy more books instead. So this lasted all of three years, and later in his life, Franklin became more well-known for his overindulgence, as opposed to him being um, living a very aesthetic lifestyle uh, that included no meat. Um, however, Pythagoras' teachings kind of um, influenced him his entire life. There's a notable letter in 1790 that he writes to one of his friends where he talks about um, Chinese soybeans and the universal use of a cheese made from them called tofu. That's how he spells it. He describes the process to a T, grinding the soybeans, simmering them, and then draining them of water. He's really excited. He tells his friend that he should he should try it, he should try to make it here in America, but I don't know if they ever did or if Ben Franklin ever, ever got to eat tofu. So there's these little blips here and there, but vegetarianism really starts to gain force at the end of the 18th and the early part of the 19th century. Um, and a, there were a lot of, dozens really, of Pythagorean, because that's actually the term that was used before the word vegetarianism was coined. People who ate a non-meat diet were called Pythagorean. There were a lot of Pythagorean churches and communities that are founded. And these communities are, they are cultish, they really are. They're often utopian communities, they're separatist societies. Um, here they are. Those are vegetarians. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you um, three stories of vegetarian cults that are probably my favorite things that I've learned doing this research. So one um, was a separatist community called the Fruitlands, and this was founded by the Alcott family. Louisa May Alcott and her brothers and sisters founded it. Um, they founded it in the spring of the year, and not only were they vegetarian, they were actually vegan. They didn't use milk or eggs or cheese, and they did not use draft animals for labor. So they were extremely moral and noble. The problem is they found it in the spring, and by the fall, they discovered they had nothing to eat. So they disbanded, and that was the end of, of Fruitopia, or whatever it's called, the Fruitlands. Um, another group was far more successful, and that's actually what this image is of. These are, is, this is the Oneida community, um, which was in upstate New York. And they made their vegetarian community financially viable by manufacturing traps, animal traps, which they sent to hunters. And then my favorite of all these early 19th century communities are the Doralites. Um, the Doralites said that their vegetarian diet made them impervious to pain. And one night at a lecture, the founder, William Doral, was giving the talk, and a member of the audience, in an attempt to prove him wrong, got up on stage and jacked him in the face. And he fell down and he got up again, and the guy hit him again. And he hit him again until William Doral started crying. And that was the end of the Doralites. <laughs> I know, I shouldn't be laughing. You guys are like, oh, come on. He said not eating meat even impervious to pain. He got hit in the face. So that was the early 19th century, but by the 1830s, things got a little bit more serious and a little bit more mainstream. Thanks to this guy, Reverend Dr. Sylvester Graham. And it is the same Graham you're thinking of. Those Graham crackers are made with a flour that he, um, that he developed. He had a big problem with the bread industry in the 1830s. 
White bread was associated with wealth. So even in the 1830s, our bread was getting whiter and whiter and whiter. Millers were separating out the germ, and they were even adding things that, to adulterate it, like plaster, to make the bread seem even more white. Graham said, Graham said that's fucking ridiculous. He probably said it more eloquently. But he was one of the first people to recognize the importance of dietary fiber. And he thought it was stupid that we were taking this out. And then sometimes the, um, the millers would even sell the brand separately so you could mix it back in with your flour. He just called it a racket. He developed a flour called Graham flour in which he milled the germ and he milled the, the endosperm, the middle and the outside. He mills them separate and then mixes it back together, which makes a whole wheat flour that's very, very smooth. You can still buy it today. Uh, Bob's Red Mill makes uh, a version of graham flour, and some graham crackers are still made with his wheat flour. So after he gets this problem with the, uh, the bread industry, he begins going on the lecture circuit, not just lecturing about bread, but also about a vegetarian lifestyle, where bread instead of meat is the center of the table. So in a way, this could be the first meat substitute. He's saying a whole wheat bread is better for you than a lamb chop or a steak. He also, however, says you shouldn't have sex or masturbate. That also goes in the same lifestyle, um, because you will lose your vital juices and become weak. So be warned. Graham had a touch of the crazies, it's true. But he also founded Oberlin University in Ohio, which was an incredibly liberal institution that had the first female African-American graduate in 1862, which is pretty phenomenal. But every student had to sub subscribe to his Graham diet. They had to eat a vegetarian diet. And through this, his diet began to enter the mainstream. If you look at cookbooks up through the turn of the 20th century, they all include recipes for what are called Graham gems, which are whole wheat biscuits that use his special flour. So even so-and-so housewife that was still eating meat was incorporating some of the ideas of, of his diet into her dinner table. Late 19th century is when things really begin to gain steam. Now, the 1830s is when we see the first vegetarian cookbook published. And it's also when the word vegetarian is coined, although no one seems to quite know where or when. The first vegetarian society is founded in England in 1847. And first vegetarian cookbook, next, in 1890, we have the No Animal Food Cookbook, which is the first vegan cookbook. The word vegan won't be coined until 1944, but in 1890, the vegan movement, or the no animal food movement, is strong enough that they have their own cookbook. I ate this diet for a week, and this is a pretty typical meal uh, from that cookbook. It's you know a bowl of like vegetable soup, but I have to say a lot of the recipes from that book really weren't bad at all. Um, Things are getting away from being religious. These books, these early vegetarian and this vegan book, they're manifestos too. But they're not talking about spirituality anymore. They do talk about morality. They do talk about the ethics of eating meat. They do begin to talk about how much grain and farmland it takes to raise an animal, which is a very modern argument. But they also raise really interesting points that speak a lot about the time in which they were published. This book, for example, in the section on milk, it says that milk is contaminated with tuberculosis, which is absolutely true. New York in, in particular had incredible problems in the 19th century with infant mortality as a result of contaminated milk. So their answer, don't drink it. Why would you drink animal products? Why would you consume animal products when they're killing your children? Which when you read that and know that context from the time period makes a lot of sense. The next kind of, I don't know what to call it, 
step up in the movement, it's like let's eat less and less, is the, the raw food movement. And their first cookbook was published in 1906 and was called Uncooked Foods. I know, unbelievably early. I will say that Uncooked Foods was not vegan. Um, the raw food movement incorporated a lot of dairy, although <laughs> the funny thing is um, the vegan cookbook had been published, you know, what, 15 years earlier and said don't drink milk. And these guys were like, you don't got to pasteurize milk. It's fine. So I don't know what happened there. But their interesting point was, look, if you eat raw and you don't have to cook your food, women can be liberated. Women won't have to spend all their day in the kitchen preparing laborious meals three times a day, which you've ever really cooked for yourself three times a day. I'm not talking bowl of cereal and microwave lunch. I'm talking really cook for yourself. That's all you do. So that's a really important, wonderful sentiment that they're writing this book and saying, look, this food is good for you. And if you eat like this, your wife can read a book. She can sit down. She can better herself instead of cooking all day long. So there were other things that were coming into play rather than just spirituality when it came to the raw food, uh, came to a vegetarian diet. Most earlier groups, they connected with teachings from the Bible. These groups were talking about problems at the time. And then, then, there's one man that changes everything. He is the granddaddy of not only the modern vegetarian diet, but the modern American diet. This guy. Now, you know him from cornflakes, obviously. But there's a lot of foods that he introduced that, um, well, you may not realize were him. Let me tell you a little bit about his story. I mean, first of all, he was five feet tall and had a gray goatee, and he always wore white suits. Again, I don't want to insult anybody that's vegetarian, but the more research I did, all the early vegetarians had a touch of the crazy. <laughs> but we were better for their craziness in the end. Now, Kellogg, when he was a young man, was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Seventh-day Adventists arose out of an earlier religious cult called the Millerites that were a vegetarian. One of the early founders of the Seventh-day Adventists, Sister White, had a premonition from God. She said God had fashioned the human body as a temple, and that abuse to that body was an abuse to God himself. So alcohol, tobacco, and meat were seen as abuses to the body, and they're therefore prohibited. Seventh-day Adventists to this day are still vegetarian or are still vegan. In 1876, to um, further the religion and also further the kind of ideas of vegetarianism, they founded the Western Health Reform Institute in Battle Creek, Michigan, which Kellogg, only a young man, headed and that eventually took over. He was extremely ambitious, and over time he got less and less religious and more and more secular. He pushed the church out and renamed this place the Battle Creek Sanitarium. It burned down in 1902, and he built it bigger and better, and he fashioned it as a health spa, a salon of sorts for the rich and the famous. It was extremely exclusive, and some of the treatments there were ridiculous or even deadly. Radiation therapy was something new, and he would use it to treat, you know, migraines, anything. So people would, would die in his clinic. At the same time, he did a lot of things that were absolutely revolutionary and still affect us to today. Okay, so foods that Kellogg either invented, discovered, and or popularized. Breakfast cereal. Peanut butter, yogurt, soy, seaweed, and meat analogs. This guy created the modern American diet. That bowl of cereal you have in the morning is Kellogg. A little cup of yogurt that you have with lunch, it's Kellogg too. 
Everything that's billed as the newest, healthiest, blah, 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 Kellogg was surveyed 100 years ago. And he invented the very first meat analog. In 1896, he gets a letter from Dr. Charles W. Dabney, who is a USDA Assistant Secretary of Agriculture. And he basically says, look, it takes this much land to raise this much grain to raise this cow. I think it's time to look for vegetarian meat substitute. Kellogg was already on it. He's living in the Victorian era, and Victorians were eating meat at every single meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and often several kinds at once. They loved meat. So if he was going to sell vegetarian, vegetarianism, which he believed was a healthier lifestyle to Victorian Americans, he was going to have to create something to kind of ease the transition. Meat analogs. After he gets this later, he develops natus, or natos. No one is quite sure. Um, I know, it doesn't look very appetizing. What makes it even more surprising is this is a contemporary photograph um, from a blog that's written out of England where it is still produced. You can go to the supermarket and buy this. Um, it's peanut-based. It's raw nuts that are ground to a smooth paste. You make a, a, an emulsion with water. Um, you thicken it with flour or starch, and then you steam it until it's set in this, this nut log. According to the cookbook that the Battle Creek Sanitarium released, it says it's so perfect that it resembles meat in appearance and flavor, as well as nutritive properties, that many persons find it difficult to distinguish the difference. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. It is the very first meat analog ever. Here's number one. Number two was created in 1904. That's this guy, Protus. Protos. Again, we're not sure. This is a really cool, cool advertisement from the time, a welcome change from meat. And Protoos would go on to become um, Kellogg's bestseller. Now, he wasn't just serving this at the cafeteria at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. After this began taking off, he created a little factory. At first, only supplied people who had been to the sanitarium and wanted to continue the vegetarian lifestyle. But eventually, they went corporate, shipping this food all over the country. Protus is made by combining peanuts and wheat gluten, along with um, stock, vegetable stock, some spices, um, and a little bit of onion. It was manufactured through the mid-1990s when it was finally discontinued, uh, much to the, the woe of people on the internet. So <laughs> in an attempt to figure out what this was like, I pieced together some recipes from online and I actually made it. <laughs> You are here to learn about fake meat. I don't understand what you expected. It doesn't like come out of the, the eye of God or something. Like it's, it starts like this. So this is ground wheat gluten, unsweetened peanut butter, and all the other things that I mentioned. Um, you, this is, it's in a bowl obviously, but you put it in a, in a double boiler and you steam it. When you pop it out, it'll look something like this. And at this point you can slice it and eat it how you want, or you can, you can fry it and roast it too. So it's considered versatile. You can make meatballs with it. You can do all kinds of stuff. Um, and I didn't just make this, you know, for fun. I made it for you guys tonight. <laughs> you seem terrified. <laughs> I've actually, this is the third time I've made it, and I've gotten better. The first time I hated it. But now, well, I don't know. Opinions are divided. So I won't... <laughs> so this is one of the samples you'll be getting at the end of my little, my little talk here. Um, so Protus is the most popular. By 1909... Um, oh, wait. 
There's Satan, which is what it's made out of. Um, by 1909, there are nine different fake meat, meat analog products that Battle Creek, Michigan, and Kellogg have released. And they're all nut and wheat gluten-based. None are soy-based. Um, Kellogg, by the 1920s, became aware of soybeans. He would go all over the world, eating foods, um, you know, talking to cultures that had long lifespans, investigating different things. And all the, he didn't necessarily know why certain things were good, but he had a real knack for picking up things that were extraordinarily healthy for you. So he gets, oh, 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 hit the wrong button. Okay, he gets on the soybean train, and he's one of the first person in America to begin experimenting with it. He releases the very, very first soy milk product in 1942 under the brand Soy Gal. Um, is that incredible? I mean, this is not stuff you think about. This is all the same guy with the cornflakes. In 1943, he releases a version of Protus that's made with soy, and this is the first American meat analog that's made from soy. So everything else, every Morningstar product, every, everything else is descended from this one thing that Kellogg developed. Um, so by the 1940s, he's expanded his line to include almost two dozen different meat analogs, including Battle Creek steaks and... Battle Creek scallops. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> Again, you came to a lecture on fake meat. I don't understand. While I was doing research, I discovered the most unbelievable thing. They still make these. Kellogg passes away in the early 1950s, and in 1960, Worthington Food buys his company. Worthington Foods is the mother company of Morningstar. Worthington is the largest uh, meat analog manufacturer on the planet, and they don't make a lot of Kellogg's old products. They do make meat scallops, the same meat scallops that Kellogg developed in the 1940s, and they even let you search online to see where you can buy them. Where can you buy them in New York City? One store in the Bronx. <laughs> I can't explain it. So <laughs> my intrepid boyfriend, while I was finishing my talk for you today, got on the train and adventured to the Bronx, showed up at a store called Good and Natural that he described as um, a bodega, a Chinese herbalist, and a witch's shop. <laughs> All rolled into one. And he picked up cans and cans of vegetable scallops for you to try. So you <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Yeah, you won't be clapping after you try it, to be honest with you. So that's all I got for you. Thanks. And we are back once again so that I can talk about fake meats that aren't as... Wait, what did everyone think about the scallops, eh? So delicious, okay. How about the, what was it, protease? Protose, how was the protose? All right, we got a clear winner. Oh, that's an amazing, okay. So... Let's talk about other fake meats. All right, so the most popular thing, though, isn't that adorable? I actually, this is probably the only image that I actually sourced from a place and wrote down where it's from. It's from thecraftarmy.com, just in case you want to make your own little tiny tofu. So 
Um, tofu, it's not really like exactly a meat analog, uh, but it's the closest thing that we've got that's really, 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 really old. Uh, it was vended around about like 150 BC and it comes from China. Um, most of the origins of fake meats, granted, Sarah talked a lot about their history in the United States, um, but a lot of the things that we use nowadays in the US are actually from Asia, mostly China. Um, it's uh, yeah, 150 BC. It's spread with Buddhism, and it's it's tofu. Um, the thing is, is that in China, tofu doesn't function as a meat analog. This is a book that I have called "The Good Tasting of Tofu," and I got it in China. And you can't necessarily tell, but those are shrimp stuffed into little round things of tofu, and it's just this. Has anyone been to China? Has anyone been to China as a vegetarian? Because it's not fun. I went once with one. Um, every, every single dish that has tofu in it also has like gobs of ground pork and just all kinds of other stuff. This book is full of incredible things about like how to, how to cleanse your body of like evil spirits um, through the use of tofu and meat. Um, so, it is sort of unique to us that uh, in America that we believe of tofu as being, oh, hey, it's basically meat, so let's eat it as fake meat. But in other countries, it just functions as a source of protein that just happens to come from plants, but no one really cares. So this is supposed to bean curd is the joke here. I don't know if it works for you. Um, now, the thing is about tofu is that it's really interesting because it's I watched, I watched a Good Eats episode like years ago about making cheese, and then years later I watched one about making tofu, and I'm like, oh my god, it's the exact same thing. Tofu is just vegetarian cheese, that's all there is to it, except you don't have a cow. Um, what you have instead are you have soybeans, and um, soybeans, they're toxic, so you have to cook them before you eat them, so you can't just eat them raw, warning to everyone. Um, but another thing is you have to turn them into milk, and you can't, like, soybeans don't have udders, they're just little beans. So you have to soak them for a while and then cook them for a while. And then you grind them up and you filter them and then you're left with a bunch of soy milk. So if you ever get maybe like a, like a can of black beans and you drain off that gross liquid that's in there before you start, that's basically black bean milk, I guess. Um, and this, this Cat, I was looking for pictures of milk mustaches and it came up first and I was like, I'm going with it, it's fine by me. <laughs> so you have a big pot and it's full of soy milk and so what do you do then? Who here's made cheese? All right, so what you have to do is you have to get it all to clump together because otherwise you simply have soy milk and that's coagulation. So there are a lot of different uh, additives you can put into soy milk in order to make it clump together. Um, and they're like acids and salts and gypsum. And okay, so cheese uses uh, rennet, which you usually get from like a calf stomach, kind of weird. Um, but also putting gypsum into soy milk in order to turn it into tofu, that seems kind of weird because when you think of gypsum, you probably think of like it's a rock. But if you're me or a contractor and you think about gypsum, you're like, hey, there's this thing called gypsum board, isn't there? And you look it up and you're like, yeah, that's drywall. So can you just put drywall into soy milk and turn it into tofu? That's not a rhetorical question. 
So what I did was, <laughs> I took my, uh, my handy uh, gypsum extraction tool and I went into a closet at the Brooklyn Brainery. And I mean, my job is generally, I don't know how many times you guys have been here, but I eat poison for MSG, like every time it's what I do. And then I mine some gypsum. <laughs> And if you've, if you've ever drilled a hole in the wall or tried to get gypsum out of drywall in order to make tofu, you know that you put a sticky note upside down and then you either use a drill or use a spoon to scrape the inside out and then it catches everything. And you end up with like half a tablespoon or so. Maybe you have to go back later because you don't have enough. But it worked out and it's the closet so no one will know when we move out. So then you heat up the tofu, and you put in the, the gypsum. You put it in the drywall, and you wait. And you wait, and you wait, and you're supposed to wait for like 10 minutes. Some people say 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And after about 20 minutes, you're like, okay, look. I swear that drywall is gypsum, and I put gypsum in there. Why is nothing happening? And so the sad part of the story is nothing happened. I just put a bunch of wall <laughs> into soy milk. But the thing is, since I was so ready to eat that drywall anyway, I was like, fuck it, I'm not wasting this. I'm putting Epsom salts in it, and then it totally coagulated <laughs> with a little bit of drywall sitting at the bottom of it. Um, so everything clumped, and the next step after that is you have to separate out all of the water. Um, and you do that by just running it through cheesecloth, which, I mean, there, there are fancier ways to do this for tofu. Like, people have blocks that they press the water out of, because, like, soft tofu has more water in it. Um, firm tofu has more water pressed out of it, whatever. Um, so what I did was I just strung up some cheesecloth, let it sit there, and then I pressed it by putting it under a bowl because I don't have a tofu machine. I used water chestnuts because I bought them in Chinatown and I figured that I was just channeling you know, chi Chinese energy in order to create tofu. Um, and it, it turned out like that's tofu. Okay, no, don't make gross sounds. Be really proud of me, this is incredible. I had never made tofu before. And then I ate it. It was pretty gross. Um, I used silk soy milk, and everyone who came into the brainery was like, oh, wow, are you cooking something that's made out of vanilla? And I was like, this is original flavor. I don't know what you're smelling. And then I tasted it, and I was like, there is something else in here. So go to some very holistic place and get all of your soy milk if you're planning on making tofu. Also, it's not hard at all and you feel really good when you've done it because you're like, I made this. It's a food. You've, and it, if you have like a tofu press, which is like a little wooden box, it probably looks better than that. Um, I don't know. So, so tofu has a lot of relatives. Um, tofu in itself, eh, you can buy that at Trader Joe's. Let's do something more exciting, like stinky tofu. So yeah, really exciting, right? Has anyone had stinky tofu? Whoa, this is so many people. That's definitely plural people. Yeah, so it's fermented. Um, what happens is you basically take tofu and you drop it in a brine, which sounds normal, right? That's how you make pickles. But, this brine is made out of fermented milk, 
and vegetables and meat and just all kinds of like random things you throw into water or milk and you just let the tofu sit there for months until it picks up a characteristically garbage-like odor. <laughs> and you can fry it, you can eat it in a soup. It's really popular in Hong Kong and Taiwanese night markets. You can buy it at some place in Flushing called Hot and Spicy or something like that. Um, I looked it up before we came here because I knew someone would ask me that. If you Google stinky tofu in NYC, you'll find plenty of links. I haven't had it in real life, but um, the most important part is because you're just putting all these random things in liquid with the tofu in order to have it ferment, uh, the Chinese government, not that they're amazing at regulating things, but they're like, they're like, man, this stuff is so crazy. Not even we can regulate it. So just don't kill anybody and it'll be okay. Now, the thing is, it takes months and months and months for the tofu to take on its wonderful scent. And because it smells kind of like poop and garbage, people will take shortcuts using poop and garbage. <laughs> so, oh yes. So uh, there was, you know, the, the probably the same network that was like people are making fake eggs and selling them on the street was like people are taking tofu and mixing it with poop and garbage and selling it to you on the street. Um, and so, you know, Maybe if you're trying to eat it, ask where it came from and go inspect the factory with a microscope because it doesn't sound like a delicious way to eat stinky tofu. Uh, so a more moderate way of eating a soy product is TVP. Um, TVP is uh, textured vegetable protein and what happens is you basically take soy flour and you subtract out all of the fat and then you're just left with the stuff that you can extrude into little Flakes is normally what they're made into. Um, and when you water them down, they have the same protein content as uh, ground beef. So if you go to a store and you're like, I want to buy TVP, it works exactly like ground beef. Um, you just, uh, you know, re-moisturize it with water, maybe like a flavored broth, and then you cook it over a stove and suddenly you're eating vegetarian tacos and it's no big deal. You can also compress them together at like nuggets. I like to think of them as the pink slime of tofu. Um, I think I, I was reading somewhere that they use hexane in the process of separating everything apart. And so hexane might actually be in TVP when you buy it, which is totally like how ammonia is in pink slime whenever you buy, you know, actual chicken, chicken nuggets. P.S. Pay attention to the fact that it says chicken nuggets right there and it's spelled like that because we'll come to that later. A, it's clearly not made out of chicken so they had to do that. But it's just, it's, TVP is great for crumbly things where you can really press them together. So if you're making burgers or something like that, it works great. Next up is Yuba, also known as a bean curd skin. Has anyone ever made tomato soup? Yeah, that took a really long time for you guys say yes. So, yes, tomato soup. You ever get that weird skin on the top of it? And you're like, this is gross. Got to stir it up. Oh, super gross. Some people like that when it's made out of soy products. So you take soy milk and you simmer it for a while, and that thing starts to form on the top where it dries out and gets kind of gross and whatever. Um, and it gets nice and leathery. And hey, 
you can just skim it right off. And this is some uh, that I made the other day. It's Yuba, it's bean curd skin, tofu skin, probably has other names that I don't know. The benefit of it is that it gets crispy really fast by frying it. Um, now here's the thing. You might be like, uh, this looks kind of gross, but I want to make you touch it. So, <laughs> I have a container of bean curd skin. Now, usually I buy it dried and I reconstitute it, but this stuff is totally like leather. And it, it's like a person. Um, we're not eating this. So I'm gonna throw this down at you guys and you can just pass it around and be like, this is bean curd skin. Pass it around. You can take it home, I don't care. I touch it with my hands, but I washed them recently. Um, the stuff that you skim right off the top of uh, soy milk kind of has a texture of intestines or like a condom is really what I was thinking the whole time. And I was like, can I say that to everyone? But you've been drinking, so it's fine. Um, the best thing about it is that you can deep fry it and it gets really, really crispy. And we'll come back to that later. Um, but as opposed to just feeling it, I'm also going to make you eat it. So there are these things called uh, bean curd knots, which are those. And it's just, they take the bean curd and they tie it into a knot and then they dry it. And this stuff feels really gross because it's like the fresh kind that you find in the refrigerated section, but I love these things. Um, they have a very chewy mouth feel and I feel like they really come off like chicken whenever you eat it. So I made bang bang chicken, um, which is kind of spicy, kind of weird, has Szechuan peppercorns in it, if you know what their deal is. And uh, it, it should be good, fingers crossed. Uh, so bean curd not. So next up, Satan. It's, it's the best joke and easiest joke ever in the world. I was trying to look for really good stories about where like a parent found a kid who was like, I love Satan, and then like grounded them for their lives, but I couldn't find anything. Um, the easy name for Satan is wheat gluten. Um, Satan was a different thing in Japan. That's where the word Satan came from. But in America, it's totally the same. It's basically, uh, you take wheat flour and then you dissolve out all of the starches, so you're just left with the proteins, and uh, you knead it. Looks like that. Uh, you can fry it, you can bake it, you can do a lot of things with it. Whenever you make it yourself, it always tastes terrible. But whenever you buy it at the store, it's great. The thing is about uh, wheat gluten is it can kind of have a, a grain to it, or a little bit of chewiness. And this is great because when you were talking about TVP before, the problem with it is that it's just like ground meat. So, you know, ground chicken, you probably don't eat that. You want something that has a little bit of more mouthfeel, a little bit chewier. And that's where seitan or wheat gluten comes in. So whenever you encounter something that has like a fibrous texture to it, um, in the same way that meat would be fibrous, probably wheat gluten. A great way that you can buy it in a can is mock duck. And it's just like duck because it has the creepy texture on it. <laughs> if you go to Chinatown looking for fake meat, this is the most popular fake meat you can buy. I don't know what to say about that. But if you leave Chinatown, the best way to find it is in these fake drumsticks. This is what I broke my tooth off on at Food Swings, but they're still delicious. Um, on the inside, uh, in order to replicate the feeling that you're eating a uh, like piece of chicken, 
they use seitan, but then on the outside, in order to get the crispiness, they use yuba or the bean curd skin because it fries up so nicely, just like normal skin does. <laughs> Who likes tempeh? Yeah. Right? Tempeh is the best fake meat. But. So tempeh is from Indonesia. Um, it's one of the few fake meats or meat analogs that don't come from China, or they're not even meat analogs, so they're just things that people eat that happen to be really high in protein. And we're like, protein, that's meat. And they're like, protein, that's all kinds of stuff. And we're like, no, it's absolutely meat. <laughs> so uh, if you can, well, if you look at this, you see these little things. Um, those are soybeans. And they're soybeans that are all bound together. And um, it was created around the 1800s. And it's just, it's, it's a wonderful way to have it's like a bean burger that you don't have to put together and fry and then have fall apart because you had too much liquid in it. <laughs> and you're like, okay, tempeh is cool. Tempeh is also really cheap. You can go to Whole Foods and buy like a like knockoff brand for like a dollar, and it's incredible. And you're like, well, what am I buying when I do this? I'm going to teach you how to make tempeh right now. Number one, you put it in a bag. You just put it in a Ziploc bag. That's what, what they do in Indonesia, or they put it in banana leaves. But banana leaves are a little bit harder to find over here, so we're going to use uh, a plastic bag. And then you put in a magic powder, which is like tempeh starter. And you're like, cool, tempeh starter. What's tempeh starter? It's our cool friend Rhizopus oligosporus. And you're like, all right, that looks like cucumbers. Not cucumbers. Broccoli? Broccoli. That's what we're going for. <laughs> it looks like broccoli or uh, Chinese broccoli, probably more so. So it can't be that bad, right? Actually, so if you'll notice when you look at, well, it's not bad. I still love tempeh. So if you look at all of these soybeans, they're not connected to each other. They're just kind of hanging out. So you kind of need something to tie them together. Our friend here does that for us. And it's a mold. It's a mold, and the mold grows around all of the soybeans and like holds hands with the other mold. And suddenly they connect with all, all each other. They connect with each other. Um, and you are left with soybeans that are held together by a mold. Um, the cool thing is, is that the mold breaks down a lot of the indigestible parts of a soybean. So that instead of, like if you just ate a soybean, you would die. If you cooked a soybean and you ate it, you wouldn't die, um, but you wouldn't get as many nutrients out of it as once this guy starts to break it down into uh, easier to digest pieces. And this really became a thing in like World War II um, because the Japanese had a bunch of uh, like work camps or POW camps in like the Indonesia area. And they were like, oh, we have to cook our POWs a bunch of soybeans. Uh, and so they'd cook it a little bit, and then they would turn it into tempeh and give it to you. And the thing was that a lot of people ended up surviving not because they were eating just soybeans, because the soybeans weren't cooked long enough to actually release all the nutrients, but because the tempeh mold actually broke it down to the point where you could get all of the nutrients out, which I thought was pretty cool. Also, on like uh, New Guinea, they were like, oh, we're going to destroy all these tempeh cultures so you can't make it anymore. And then post-war, they had to import more mold from other islands in order to start the industry again. The thing is, instead of just soybeans, you can do this with anything. 
So a lot of people in uh, Indonesia have a ton of coconuts, and they're like, okay, I have all these coconuts, and I made a bunch of coconut milk, but what do I do with all this leftover coconut that I can't really eat? Someone's like, why don't we just make it into tempeh? We'll put the mold on it. The mold will break everything down, and we can eat it. And everyone's like, this is amazing. And then you would eat it, and then you would die <laughs> because it just got uh, contaminated all the time by all of these other like evil bacterias. Um, because the mold uh, secretes basically antibiotics that prevent evil things from poisoning you whenever you're eating, um, eating the tempeh. But it doesn't work so well with coconut, and it was very bad, and people started to die. And the e Indonesian government was like, okay, you're not allowed to make it anymore. No one can sell it. We're banning it. It's like prohibition. And just like prohibition, people were like, I'm going to make this at home by myself. I don't know what I'm doing. And then even more people died. So that's the state that we're at right now, where this thing is banned, but people are just dying. Also, it's like a dozen people die a year. So it's not like there's not going to be Indonesia anymore, uh, but it's still a thing that's banned that people are dying about. And also, don't try to make tempeh out of coconuts. <laughs> what you should try to do is make Rubens out of them, because tempeh Rubens are the best food ever created. End of story. <clears throat> Meanwhile, in the UK, and in the 1960s, people thought, what are we gonna do when we run out of food to feed all the cows? And someone was like, well, we should probably make more food to feed the cows because I really wanna eat meat. So in the 1960s, they started to experiment with ways um, to basically culture single-celled organisms to produce protein in order to feed that to cows. And they, they, like World War I actually is the genesis of this in Germany. They started to work a lot with this. And these days, you know it, like if you buy instant yeast at the grocery store, that is from uh, like single-celled yeast that they grow in like a vat somewhere. And then they skim it off and then they sell it to you. Um, but they were trying to get protein out of it. It didn't work that well. Maybe cows didn't want to eat it. Who knows? Um, but then they were like, why don't we do this for people instead of cows? Because people are less picky. <laughs> and so they did. And what they did was um, our friend <laughs> Fusarium veninatum, uh, which is a mold, once again. And they put it in a silo with a bunch of glucose, and then it produces a protein, and they just take out the protein, and they call it corn. And that's corn spelled that way. Um, it's a mycoprotein. People get angry about it because they're like, you didn't tell me I'm eating a single-celled organism, but it's totally fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and so these people, uh, the people who developed corn, they actually had a 10-year probationary period where they were selling it, and they had to lease space from the people who were trying to use yeast to grow things for the cows. So it was like a directly, like they were like, okay, we're gonna take these silos and we're gonna fill them with sugar and mold instead of yeast and it's gonna be great. And it was, and people liked it. And in uh, the 80s and 90s, uh, corn started to spread throughout Europe and you get chicken nuggets. Why do they spell it like that every single time? <laughs> Come on, think of something new to call them. Um, it made it to the US in 2002. It's kind of like TVP. Um, in that it's good for stuff that is compressed, but also because the mold makes like long, reachy, grabby things, fibers, um, it ends up having the same sort of fibrous texture that you would look for in an actual piece of meat. Um, 
So the problem about it was McDonald's made a burger out of corn, 2004. And the vegetarian society in the UK was like, this is great. I'm just going to read the quote to you. In 2004, McDonald's introduced a corn-branded burger bearing the seal of approval from the Vegetarian Society, an endorsement criticized by the Vegan Society. <laughs> Infighting, what can you do? Um, the Vegan Society just didn't like that it was McDonald's doing this, so they kind of brought the hammer down on the Vegetarian Society. Um, but... What are you really going to do? And then it was discontinued because no one liked to eat it. <laughs> it's sad. I don't know if they ever had it in the U.S. I think they might have had a different one here. Um, but let's say you don't want to go to McDonald's in the U.K. in the past in order to buy all of your fake meat. <laughs> There's a place called Maywa. Who has been to Maywa? <clears throat> yeah. Everyone should cheer next time we have MSG because you've already gone there between now and then because it's the best. Look at all these things they sell. Vegetarian fish, or vegan grilled eel, vegan cocktail sausage, vegetarian fish ham, vegetarian chicken bites, vegetarian barbecued chunks. Like, what the hell is all of this? It's incredible. They have, they have vegetarian uh, lobsters in the shape of a lobster. They have vegetarian fish in the shape of a fish. I bought a ton of vegetarian shrimp, shaped like shrimp. I haven't eaten them yet, though, so I can't report to you. But you can buy an eight-pound bag of fake chicken drumsticks for $42, which I did all the time whenever I first moved to New York, because they're amazing, and you don't have to worry about dying. Um, they're on uh, Center and Hester, so it's just north of Canal, like faux Chinatown, Little Italy area, and they're amazing, but if you want to go to a place that A, likes MSG, and B, is on the internet, fakemeats.com. They have all the, like, normal fake meat. So they have all your jerkies. They have a uh, vegan egg yolk and they have a video about how vegan egg yolk works. So, and it's really fun to watch if you want to go to their website and click, it's on their featured products page. You should totally do it. It's enchanting. Um, they have lots of jerky. They have everything you could ever want except for the bean curd knots, but we won't hold that against them because that is a weird thing to buy. So what have we learned? We've learned all the places that fake meat comes from. Let's talk about some of them. A, bean blood, <laughs> where you squeeze a soybean until it gives up its life force, and then you turn that into fake meat. B, soup skin, where you cook a soup poorly, and you take the top of it off, and you dry it into some sort of really creepy skin. Three, drywall, but not drywall, because that doesn't work. Satan. And all kinds of mold all over the place. You can eat the mold by itself. You can eat the byproduct of the mold. You can eat the mold hanging out with soybeans or rice or whatever you want. And that, my friends, is the end. <laughs>